And I think it's dangerous when there is no truth except from the mouth of power. Welcome to another episode of Mind of State. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Michael Lefty. And together we're your hosts for Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. Hi, Betty. Hi, Michael. So our guest this week is Scotty McLennan. He is an ordained Unitarian minister, a lawyer who has specialized in poverty law, and a lecturer at Stanford University and the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches in the areas of ethics, spirituality, and business. From 2000 to 2014, he was the Stanford University Dean for Religious Life, and before that, he was the university chaplain at Tufts University for 16 years. He is author of several books, including Jesus Was a Liberal, Reclaiming Christianity for All. Welcome to Mind of State, Scotty. Welcome. Thank you so much. You teach a course at Stanford with a colleague on the ethics of truth in a post-truth world. And from the point of view of a minister and a lawyer and a professor, you look at truth from a lot of different positions. There's a lot of talk about post-truth and alternative facts. Can you tell us some of your positions on truth or what, what, what do we mean by truth? Sure. Well, in the course, we look at truth through a number of different lenses, journalistic truth, at scientific truth, uh, law, and uh, the way truth comes out in the courtroom, religion claims you know, to have the truth, and personal authenticity. You know, what does it mean to be true to yourself? And in the process, we realize that we live in a postmodern world where putting aside for a moment all the things we hear on the news about fake news and alternative facts, and is there any truth anymore? It really is quite difficult in a postmodern world to talk about truth since it really tends to be in the eye of the beholder. So if you're talking history, for example, what is the historical fact or reality that you might be looking at? Well, it depends in a postmodern perspective as to whether you're low income or high income, what your race is, what country you come from, uh, and so on. So it is hard for students to get a grasp on what we mean by truth. And then when you proliferate the arenas in which we talk about truth, it gets even more difficult for them. And uh, you put aside the the realm of news and journalism and politics, which is what we're about in part, and mind is our other half. But in the news and in journalism and in politics, truth is something that's really up for grabs these days. I'm thinking at the point of our recording, the example of Jesse Smollett in the news, um, uh, the actor for Empire who allegedly was attacked, he said, by MAGA supporters because he was black and gay. And now it has allegedly come out that he has faked this attack. And it's well, it's not allegedly come out. Right. He's been charged. Well, he's been charged. He's been charged and now. he's not been adjudicated, so... Correct. Yeah. So, so with your perspective as a lawyer, <laughs> Scotty, um, you can weigh in on this on, on a lot of different levels. Like, this issue of whether Jesse Smollett was telling the truth for the last couple of weeks at the time of this recording has been really on the front pages of a lot of the major news organizations. And so how do we traffic in truth online when you know, social media has many, many opinions? Everybody's got an authority. Everybody's got an opinion on Twitter on this. Everybody takes what they hear and runs with it. What do you think of all this in terms of how we manage the truth? Well, at the first level, you've already distinguished between journalistic truth and legal truth. 
So I appreciate you using the word allegedly. And then Michael pushed back a little bit to say, well, wait a minute, what's alleged and what is not? And the fact is that in this country, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So I think from a legal perspective, it's very important to use the word allegedly and to not prejudge how something is going to come out at trial when somebody's been criminally charged. On the other hand, in terms of journalism, we need to be careful to report what we know and to be um, when it's not entirely clear or when there might be a, a counter perspective to make sure that's presented. And I do worry about opinion being confused so often with journalistic integrity in reporting facts. So a lot of our students don't often know the difference between opinion and factual reporting. What do you mean by that? Well, take the Wall Street Journal, for example. It's uh, often seen as a very conservative uh, newspaper because if you look at its editorial pages and its opinion pages, you'll get a, a conservative perspective. But they have some of the best investigative journalism, I think, uh, in the country where they really dig in and make sure that they're presenting what's true factually, regardless of what one's, one's opinion may be of those facts as presented. And when you say dig in, they back check and they confirm and they make, they don't take one person's opinion on, on a reported situation. They well, you also try to figure out what your bias is when you're reporting all of the things that you don't do when you tweet. Right. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> and so you do need, you know, their journalistic ethics, which people used to take seriously when they called themselves journalists. And you make sure that you have, you know, you have more than one source, that your sources have been checked, uh, that you have ideally other kinds of evidence available to you than just what somebody might say. So if you are reporting as a journalist and complying with traditional journalistic ethics, you wouldn't just be, as you say, tweeting out something that you like or don't like based on your bias. Yeah, but it's interesting to you saying all this because I think inherent in the presumption is that journalists, filmmakers, I'm a documentary filmmaker, I teach documentary journalism, oddly enough, and people tend to see themselves as advocates. And, you know, that's a slippery slope sometimes because you, when you advocate, you're you not- You have a bias. You have a bias. And you- you you start having a calling to what some of the people in my business call a higher truth, which is, I think, a very dangerous proposition. But, Scotty, I'm also curious. You know, it seems to me that this malleability of there not being truth is in many ways a product of the new left, mostly out of the 60s, right, that attacked the sort of order of that day, the academia, the Michel Foucaults of the world. We said you can't really know anything, right? And you can't really judge other cultures, right? Your truth doesn't extend to somebody else's truth. And all of this relativism, both in terms of moral relativism and moral truth, I'm starting to sound like a Fox News commentator here. Um, Go for it, Michael. Yeah, has, has <laughs> in some ways come back and boomeranged on them, right? And so now you have folks like Donald Trump or Kellyanne Conway saying, hey, there is no truth. There's my truth. And truth is a function of power. And therefore, I, I just look at the left in academia as having eroded the notions of truth for generations. And this is Jill Lepore's point. Who's a historian. Who's a historian out of Harvard, that 
you know, we've spent a generation saying, yeah, you know, it's all your truth is not, you know, you can't, you can't take your Western culture and impose it on someone else and so on and so forth. And then you're sort of left with no center of gravity. Right. And if we go back to your earlier point about advocacy and that being journalism, we have the problem that I as an attorney see all the time, which is you need two sides when you walk into a courtroom. You can't just advocate for your own client. There's the other perspective and you have a neutral fact finder in the middle, a judge or a jury. Um, Now, they don't necessarily come up with the truth, but they try to get the truth beyond a reasonable doubt or by the preponderance of the evidence or by clear and convincing evidence. I mean, there's there's rules as to how to do that. So that's quite different than uh, and, and, and take another realm for a moment. Religion. Most religions think they have the capital T truth and that uh, this whole postmodern way of looking at truth is fundamentally flawed because it doesn't understand the real nature of reality, which is capital U, ultimate capital R reality. So yeah, there's these different ways of coming at it. And I think it's dangerous when you begin using words like advocacy or pure postmodern analysis where there is no truth except from the mouth of power. And we lose our legal uh, notion of truth. We lose our religious notion of truth. And let's go to another area of science. What is scientific truth? And that's one area where I think my students usually are clearest. They say, well, if we can't find an absolute truth anywhere else, at least we can find it in science. Um, You know, there are these natural laws. They're discoverable. Um, If you jump out a 10-story building, you know, there is a law of gravity and you're going to die and you just are not going to argue about that. So that's the one arena really. And of course, now that gets undercut too, because Client science, scientific yeah. Yeah, science keeps progressing and, and no there's new theories. And so we go from and, Newton's gravitation right. to Einstein to right. um, quantum theory and so on. If I can, can I go back to, to Betty's comment or, or, or query earlier about Jesse Smollett and that whole yeah. thing? Because it seems to me, however, that ends up playing out. And we should frame the conversation by saying you are always innocent in this country until proven guilty. And accusations are not the same thing as guilt. But a lot of things get adjudicated on the newspaper. Well, that's the point. I think that's that's exactly your point. And I think that that this whole narrative right now is uh, from different facets fascinating to look at. You have the, the, the Trump supporters who now are asserting a truth that you, the left, rushed to judgment, I'm vindicated. This is also part of the Covington High School drama that also blew up on Twitter before people knew the facts. These are the teenagers, the teenagers on the from mall Covington High in School. DC. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. People were asserting specific truths, mostly in social media, but also in newspapers like the Washington Post. Certainly many people covered the Jesse Smollett case as fact. Presidential candidates like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker came forward. And now a subset of the United States, those people who support Donald Trump, feel vindicated in their truth. Similarly, people who are victims of real hate crimes, genuinely victims of hate crimes, you know, quite often transgender communities is uniquely prey to violent hate crimes, especially black transgender community, feel uniquely vulnerable now in the aftermath of this revelation, that their legitimate claims won't be listened to. Their truth now gets denied. 
What I find disturbing and fascinating in all of this is the speed with which we determine truth and then the danger for all of us when that rush to judgment turns out to be precipitous too fast yeah and, um, and that's a that's a kind way of saying and, and, it, you know and I and mean, maybe we're talking truth we're saying the word truth but we really don't mean truth we mean opinion well we're using the word truth as a club to beat other people that's what we do and that's where i get to the advocacy and we've been talking a lot i'm curious what are you thinking about all that <laughs> well it comes back to i mean a lot we've said a lot of it it's opinion versus fact, etc. But when it's all being claimed to be fact, all claimed to be truth, it's important to use words like alleged again to say, you know, that, and the Mueller investigation is doing quite a good job of, of this. You know, everybody keeps saying, well, we don't, we don't really know yet. You know, we've got to be patient. We've got to hear um, how this comes out. Um, so I think that's a really important thing for us to to keep reminding ourselves of. We don't have the the whole story yet. And another thing that we need to do more of, because we're so siloed in our partisan worlds, is to genuinely listen to each other and to empathetically listen to each other and to not be so quick to shut each other down. We can't even I, do that on this I, podcast, Scotty. Sorry? <laughs> so we can't even do that on this podcast. We struggle. We struggle. <laughs> yeah. We try, though. I mean, I find it really astounding, given that we don't have Walter Cronkite anymore, to tell us you know, uh, both sides out of one person's mouth, how anyone can watch the news at night and not watch both Fox News and MSNBC or CNN or whatever – if they want to have any possible understanding of what's going on. Yeah, and I've stopped watching altogether. Well, Patty, and I do think you watch the news? I don't. Scotty, I, I do admit, you? I admit that I don't. Yes, I, I do. Read. I do what, just exactly do what I said. I watch Fox, and I watch MSNBC, and I watch you know, PBS. And I'm hoping that somewhere in that I can sort it out and find something close to the truth. But you're not going to get it. When you tell people you listen to Fox, what do they say in your community? A lot of people, because I'm on the left, a lot of people are appalled. They can't believe it. And I go the other way and say, I can't believe you're not listening to Fox. How can you possibly, you know, live in this country where somewhere close to 50 percent, call it 30 percent, call it whatever you want. You know, this is the way they look at the world. And and by the way, MSNBC has all of its own biases. So how can you possibly uh, speak to our reality without watching both? Would that we have Laura Cronkite again, but we don't. I think, Scotty, what you're pointing to is that you're going to both sides of the news spectrum to get to the truth. But a lot of people are going to the news to reaffirm their tribe or reaffirm their identity, reaffirm their belief systems. And so they they gather around Rachel Maddow or they gather around Sean whoever, Hannity. Sean Hannity, thank you. No you're so <laughs> um, to, you're so Fox illiterate. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> Tucker Carlson. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's okay. But, Shep uh, Smith's really Shep good. Smith, um, He's really good though. He's a really good journalist. I would fail that quiz. Um I like uh, him a and lot. I pretty much failed the MSNBC quiz, although I I, I do have a have a have a fan a fangirl feeling for Rachel Maddow. See, but ha- but they are going to these news news sites and channels to affirm themselves, to find their group, to gather around these coasts, to reify their their belief systems and their values in this in this sphere. They're not looking necessarily for the truth. They're looking for a way to feel better about what's going on. 
to hear their side of it on a, a national news channel, be it cable news. And no, we don't have a Walter Cronkite or a three-channel system anymore where we're getting all of our news from very specific and centralized sites. So you're talking about a centralized versus a decentralized purveyance of or dissemination of information. So how do we ground ourselves in this spin, which happened organically? Well, we're forgetting democracy. We're forgetting our civics lessons from fifth grade. We're forgetting that we put our hands over our hearts on a regular basis and pledge allegiance to a flag and talk about a republic. Uh, you know, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You forgot well, God. How do we do you that God. at one point and then forget that that's what it, it, we're all about? We're all Americans. You know, Obama said that back in the, what, 2004 Democratic Convention. You know, we're not blue states and red states. We're the United States of America. We Our national motto is e pluribus unum, you know, out of many, one. Uh, we know all that stuff from our revolutionary history of, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. Uh, what's happened to our understanding of democracy um, in this time that we need to just stay with our own tribes? We know that's a recipe for disaster. We know that's a recipe ultimately for revolution. You know, but it's interesting, Betty, as you were talking, and Scotty, as you're I'm listening to you, Betty, you're talking about listening to uh, MSNBC as one piece of a truth, or Fox is another piece. I don't think either of them traffic in facts or truth. No, I don't know. If you know what I mean? Just say, like, yeah, I'll listen to Rachel Maddow, and it's just her... Opinions. Yeah, well, but couched as news reporting. Right. There's That's we, the thing. Like, so Mueller has not come out with anything. He's had some indictments. Those indictments are very specific. And yet, every time there's an indictment, people get on the news, CNN as well, and pontificate about what it all means. And they don't know. And I think you have to, you, what you're pointing to, Michael, and, and something to for you, to Scotty, to comment on is the form in which truth gets packaged or opinion yeah, exactly. and truth gets packaged. Because you see a Walter Cronkite-ish person, a host of a TV show on a major news channel that gets blasted all over the world, and they're saying something. Or you see the printed word on a website or on a, a in the old-fashioned sense, on a newsprint journal. And we th- we lend those things a certain kind of authority. But is that something that we need to be careful about now, given that there are many, many, many of these journals and many, many, many of these websites, some of them we know where they their information comes from, like the Wall Street Journal does um, uh, a, a deep job of it, their investigative reporting, but not every, not every journalist, not every news organization does this. Well, they do. No, journalists do it. And I think that that's one of the problems with Trump, right? That he's attacked the news so spectacularly that we don't even have faith in journalism anymore. But journalism is not the same thing as opinion. No, it's not. And But it stands next to, now people are thinking what they get on Facebook is equivalent That's, that's Facebook's to, problem. Well, it's our problem too, yeah. that we, we buy that. Well, we buy what we're on, seeing. That's why everybody should go off Facebook. <laughs> You're in the minority position there. And it's not just Facebook. It's Google. Um, yeah. It's it's Wikipedia. It's wherever you're going. YouTube. That, and you're not digging down to the, the sources that underlie what you're you're getting. And it's this confusion between opinion and journalism. And I think part of it is for journalists to remind us in, in schools of journalism and, and everywhere else, 
about journalistic ethics. What is a journalist? Uh, why is it a profession and not just a business uh, to make money off of? Uh, what does it mean to be a profession? What does it mean to have a code of ethics? What does it mean to care about your clientele, um, who are your readers, uh, as, as your number one constituency, not yourself, not your, your business? So I think we need to return to a real understanding across the board, not just with journalism. Um, professional ethics um, is uh, having a hard time these days for lawyers, for, for physicians, for, for journalists, and we need to... Uh, get back to that center and then have people respected because they actually are professionals. I mean, you, you identified um, basic American values of democracy and e pluribus unum, and I have recently cited the Declaration of Independence um, uh, as as these um, perhaps grounding principles and grounding um, central documents that we can return to as ways to to center ourselves as what we're all about, but they seem to be getting drowned in this signal to noise situation that there's a lot of noise. And so how do we clarify, how do we, how do we focus ourselves and remind ourselves of democracy when even our president, um, sitting in the office of the United States, uh, you know, oval office, taking on the form of the leader of the free world is advocating things that are very much against the principles of democracy. We need to defend our institutions. We need to make sure that courts are courts and have uh, somebody like the Chief Justice John Roberts say when the president talks about Obama judges, we don't have Obama judges. We have judges in, you know, in an independent court system. We need to defend our, I mean, I never thought I'd say this, uh, having uh, been on the left for my whole life, but you know we need to defend the CIA and the FBI and and their ability to do uh, a, a a thorough and, and uh, neutral investigation. We need to defend our um, institutions like Congress and realize we have a separation of powers and Congress needs to exercise its duties to make sure that it has the power of the purse and not the president. Uh, so I there there I, I think ultimately. This country um, is only an idea. It's, uh, it is the Declaration of Independence. That really is our creed as a nation. And we've had some good leadership in the past. I think of people like Martin Luther King Jr., who was able to both advocate for his tribe, if you will, um, that is, you know, talk about people who are oppressed and, uh, and talk about racism and, uh, and poverty and so on, but at the same time, always tie it back to our common connection to the Declaration of, you know, that there are certain self-evident truths that all people are created. I actually said men originally, but all people are created equal, you know, and, and there's somebody who was able to say, yeah, it did say men originally, but we mean women. We mean uh, not just white men, uh, but go back to those original documents and those, those original vision, because otherwise America has nothing. I mean, we're we're not an ethnicity like a lot of countries are. We're not a religion like a lot of countries are, but we are an idea. We're an aspiration. Yeah. And, that, and I think that the thing about King is that he was a genius and he, he was consistently asking to us as a country to hold ourselves to our own standard, that, that uh, America in King's vision was, was redeemable to live up to its own words. 
uh, and that it had failed, but that it could succeed in its promise of, of as you say, uh, you know, ensuring human rights and dignity to each of its citizens. What I think is so fascinating, and Betty and I have talked about this in the past on the show, is that we've lost that vision, we've lost that articulation, and 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 that we are now telling two very competing stories that on the right, make America great again, maybe the best example of it, uh, the right tells a story in the past tense. Looking back, we once were glory, we have to get back to that. And, that, and you know, obviously when you do that, you don't include immigrants, you don't include equal rights for women, you tend to also, that means, you know, going back to era of Jim Crow. When you, you, when you think about the past tense, it's, it's by its nature, when you talk about well, America, exclusionary. Right. It's past tense defined by those people who want to define it in a certain way. Right. But the left has lost its voice. And the left does not tell a story about America that has any hint of redemption in it. The left's vision, I think, of America is one where America is implacably evil and can't be redeemed. Right? It's always going to be racist. It's always going to be sexist. It's always going to be something. Well, I don't know if that's exactly the argument of the left, but that feels that way. Sure, feels that way to me. I mean, I think the left wants, um, as you put it, Scotty, a plurality and a recognition of all different voices. I do feel like in that in that way, it's lost an ability to unify those voices. I think that's because there's no redemption in its narrative. I think there's no link. Um, and, and it goes back to an interesting point about Jesse Smollett. Um, if, if I may, there's another, uh, interesting point about that story, which is underlying the actual actions and the actual, um, opinions that are swirling around it, which is that here is a black gay young man who was walking the street on his own. And he, there's obviously, if, if, he allegedly created this situation. What in him created that narrative? Why did he need to tell this story of being subjugated by m- people who were who were uh, MAGA supporters? Well, that's I mean, the worst part of it. He did it for his own selfish reasons of trying to get more money, supposedly. Right. This is the allegation at allegedly. At yeah, allegedly. <laughs> this is the allegation that the so, motivation was simple for greed. attention. Greed. He was not getting the part he wanted, and he didn't get the money he wanted, and that's why he did it. That's the that is the nightmare of this thing. So to clarify, what, he wanted to create a, a greater celebrity around himself so that he could be more valued on the TV show. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's the allegation. Now, mm-hmm. not no. That is an unproven allegation. That is. The and again, allegation that is not the truth, that is an allegation. But, but in theory, here the, the, the motivation is a deeply selfish one and destructive one, and that's the danger in all of this. And we're trafficking in and we're spending all this time talking about it because it causes real harm to a lot of people. Among chief among them, those people who are genuinely the victims of hate crimes in this country, um, but you know, in a, in a not in a similar way and not in the same way, but those people who are tarred and feathered then with the notion that they, because they support Donald Trump, are complicit in hate crimes, and that's what Twitter went crazy with when this story broke, and those people are now feeling not just vindicated but triumphant. And what we end up with 
is is zero truth, right? Nothing to hold on to. No, it's all sand that you pick up and just wears right through your fingers. And now everybody using whatever piece of that narrative that they want, uh, you know, to for their own ends to club the other person. Yeah, for their own. Well, it's also to gain more power. Correct. Um, what do you think of all this, Scotty? Well, I'd like to go back to what Michael said about redemption and that we don't have a vision of redemption. I think that's a really important point, and it moves me to another realm of my life, which is religion. Um, I mean, Obama came in with a redemptive vision of how America might be, not only the unifying one of no blue states and red states, but only the United States, but a, a message of hope and a message of, you know, a vision of, a, of an America that was grounded in these founding documents, but also is, is not yet realized. And for a moment, I want to say something positive about identity politics, which we've been talking about, which is, you know, you move from the realm of selfishness that we've been talking about to a group, and you feel the pain of other people uh, and the hope and the aspirations of other people in your group, if you can keep building those concentric circles out, you know, and not circling the wagons, um, ultimately you can get a vision of the whole and you can get a, a redemptive vision. And, you know, that's what religions have historically done. They've done a lot of harm. I actually used to preach a sermon every year, does religion do more harm than good? And obviously it does a lot of harm in terms of its divisiveness and uh, its violence and holocausts and pogroms and holy wars and so on. But it also, uh, a lot of the founders and a lot of the, the communities talk about um, some vision uh, of the next world, whether it's you know Christian ideas of redemption or it's Jewish concepts that we've been exiled, but we will return um, you know, to some kind of a promised land, uh, whether it's a, a Muslim notion that um, if you... Uh, get beyond your own pride. I mean, that's, that's sort of the centerpiece of Islam, right. you know, mm -hmm. the, the great sin is pride and selfishness and and submit to to God, to a, a larger vision. Um, there's a, a very different kind of hope. And, you know, we can keep ticking through all the, the religious traditions, you know, Buddhism uh, also sees as its centerpiece, uh, as the problem of human suffering, ego and selfishness. And you need to... to <laughs> Ego attachment is the big issue. How do you get beyond that in a vision of compassion, uh, in a vision of, uh, of, of bringing uh, all living beings, uh, all sentient beings together as one? So we just need to build these, these circles out um, and keep building them out with messages like Jesus did. Of, you know, obviously, you need to love your neighbor, you know, as he said with the, the Hebrew Bible on his lips. Uh, but then he went on to say, you know, you need to to love the stranger, which is also a, a Jewish concept. Um, but then beyond that, you need to love your enemy. Really? You need to right. love your enemy? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because the blessed community um, includes everyone. And that vision of redemption is one that, you know, King used to talk about, Martin Luther King Jr. used to talk about all the time. Right. Well, he was a minister and he understood, I think he felt, you know, the power of redemption. And if you deny yourself or others redemption, you deny the other person humanity. And that Absolutely. ultimately is where we have come. We don't, we don't see the humanity in the other anymore. And, you know, it's funny, as you were talking, Scotty, I was even thinking of, you know, just in terms of pop culture, 
Star Wars, right? It's, 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 it's a favorites. very powerful yeah. story. But, you know, look at the end. Darth Vader, who we've learned, you know, is a mass murderer, right? He killed all of the Padawan children at the end of the, you know, I mean, like you go through He's that whole story. a genocidal despot. Right. He is redeemed. Yeah. He is redeemed at the end. Yeah. And that story works because the worst can find redemption. Now, we, I think that among the things that we've lost, and we, we've we sort of strayed somewhat from truth, is the fact that right now what we need is, as you say, Obama was as, as good an example of that as a politician as any in the modern era, someone who offers us the power of hope and the power of redemption. And I think, personally, the country is just desperately hungry for that voice, but there, it's not there right now. At least I don't feel it. I mean, I think something that you mentioned, Michael, about Jesse Smollin and something that you mentioned, Scotty, about um, the redemption and and what the basis of multiple religions are in seeking redemption is the is the dialectic between materiality and spirituality. And when we talk about Jesse Smollett, he was doing this allegedly for personal gain um, and trafficking in all of these symbols of the MAGA supporters of being gay, of race, of um, being a young man who is uh, subjugated and alone walking on a street, um, a black young man. And and now there's this extra added issue of, of celebrity, which is money and materiality. And paying with a check. We talk about if you're going to stage your own attack, use cash. Right. Can we just <laughs> right? Use I mean, like, cash. Well, well, you know, and we follow the money. We follow the money, just like in Watergate. If but, you're but, listening you know, in and you're trying to figure out, like, how am I going to stage my own? Like now, our my big takeaway is use cash and also just did you like hear? the mafiosos, right? But but to to hit hue to the point of materiality and spirituality, I mean, I think you know this information age where everything becomes clickbait. So we're talking about truth. We're talking about words. We're talking about words mattering, but but every word becomes possibly something to garner yourself a million likes, and that becomes translated into power for politicians because they're trying to tweet something that everybody will pay attention to, and that gives them the spotlight. But but that there is a, a lack of spirituality which doesn't traffic in the material doesn't have a dollar sign next to it, and yet is something that we need desperately to um, transcend. We are limited creatures on this earth. We're going to die. And as one of our first interviewers, um, Solomon um, Sheldon Solomon said, the thing that carries us across this anxiety of death is the meaning and culture and art. And really, these are, these are um, elements of spirituality. Would you agree with that, Scotty? Every word. I mean, um, this is the, the beauty of not having to preach if somebody else can do it for you. <laughs> it's just beautifully stated. From therapist to the pulpit. <laughs> I'm moving on up, Michael. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Reverend Tang. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, I think that, uh, Scotty, how do you how do you see the role of religion then in our society right now. I think that there's a great deal of skepticism in it. And I think that one of the things that has unfortunately happened is that those people who are deeply religious, who really do believe and for whom it is an integral part of their life, especially those Christians in America, 
feel as though they have no home on the left, that there's a skepticism, there's a sort of condescension. Yeah, we're deeply divided them. along religious lines. Well, but also because I think that, well, one, I think religion's been politicized, right? Uh, but I also think uh, that the left has, they look down on it. Like you must be... Um, not educated. St stupid, frankly, right? Yeah, not educated is a nice way of saying it, but I would say stupid. Well, Scotty, you told me a story about when you were a chaplain. Um, I don't know if it was at Stanford or was at Tufts of all the groups that came to you. I mean, I think that that's an interesting metaphor for what we're going through right now. Could you give us, give give me and Michael and, and our listeners like some of that story of the groups that came to you while you were sure. a university chaplain? Well, this, this happened both when I was a chaplain at, at Tufts for 16 years and the dean for religious life or chaplain at, at Stanford for 14 years. So 30 years of having oh, several dozen different religious groups on campus from you know Christian evangelicals, Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, um, Baha'is, you know, it just goes on and on. And then at Stanford, we had this wonderful group called AHA uh, with an exclamation mark for atheists, humanists, and agnostics. And, um, <laughs> That's awesome. So, <laughs> I want that t-shirt. <laughs> right. So uh, every one of those groups would come through my office door, we'd close the door, they'd sit down, and they would tell me um, how discriminated against they were and how much they felt at risk and how the whole community thought they were saying some of the things that Michael was just saying, you know, I'm an evangelical Christian and nobody thinks that I uh, have any intelligence. I'm a, um, a Roman Catholic and Catholicism has always been attacked within the academy or um, I'm a Jew. And let me tell you about the levels of anti-Semitism that are rife in this, in this university or I'm a Muslim, you know, and I've actually had death threats. And people say, how can you wear that headscarf? And how can you, you know, be a, a woman, a modern woman in a university? And, um, you know, one after the other, they all came in and they all told me how discriminated against they were and how they tended to not know that everybody else was coming in <laughs> and saying virtually the same thing. And then one thing I really used to love was having um, – all these groups that are religious talk about it being a secular university and how you can't talk about religion in the modern university. It's all rational. It's all anti-religious. It's all science and so on. And then I would have the aha group or its equivalent humanists and you know other groups that I've had over the years come through the door and say, um, the problem is you cannot be an atheist at a university. Um, it is so religious. It is so spiritually oriented. We have this church sitting at the middle of the campus. And by the way, when I graduate and I want to go into politics, I can never say I'm an atheist. I, there's no way you can go into politics. Uh, you would not be accepted in America uh, as an atheist. Uh, you know, 95% of people consistently in these Gallup polls say they believe in God. And um, so they felt so discriminated against it. They said, you know, it's a, basically a religious environment that we, we exist in and there's no room for secularity. So how do you put all that together? Yeah, so from your position day? from your position as university chaplain like in the sort of seeing all this um uh, happening under your umbrella did each of them have a legitimate claim to feeling so subjugated? Absolutely. Every one of them had a factual, I'm going to say that again, factual basis for their claims and they could point to evidence and to experience um which you know, backed up what they were saying. Absolutely. 
So that kind of speaks to the, the identity politics that is happening on the right and the left here in the United States. Everybody has a legitimate claim to their feelings of being subjugated, even those we were talking just last week to a political scientist about white identity politics. So, so everybody has a legitimate claim. And what is your answer to these groups? What, what, what did you say to them? Well, part of my answer is to to just let them know that, by the way, uh, five minutes earlier or, you know, five weeks earlier, you know, the exact opposite person from who you say is oppressing you walked through the door and told me how oppressed, oppressed they were. So this is just a generalized uh, phenomenon of whatever you want to call it, religion, identity, politics, a sense of community, um, identity, you know, it, it goes on. But so that's one thing, just to let people know that. And the second thing is to say, gee, if you would actually listen to each other, um, if you would uh, have environments, and I tried to create some of them artificially, like having people in discussions over very controversial subjects where you could not speak until you'd summarized what the previous speaker had said in such a way that they accepted it. You know, So you would summarize it and, they, and, and they'd say, no, you didn't quite hear what I said. I said this. And then you, you'd have to try to summarize again. And not until you could adequately summarize what had just been said, could you speak. That helps people really listen to each other and listen empathetically. Um, and you begin to see how much similarity there is, how much shared pain there is. Um, but you also see the uniqueness of, of every group's um, issues and how it, it really is. Anti-Semitism really isn't the same as anti-Muslim sentiment, Islamophobia. And it's not really the same as what evangelical Christians uh, experience by being denigrated in the academy, et cetera. So that's, that's, you know, just being able to figure out how to get people to empathetically listen to each other. And then at the far end of it, you say all of your traditions talk about a vision of unity. They all talk about the commonality that we're all creations of the same God. You know, we have this fundamental document in in the U.S. that these are truths that we're all created equal and we're endowed by a creator, by the way, with certain inalienable rights, you know, and that's it. Not the atheists. So, so, So people could only earn the right to speak if they had proven they truly listened to their their opponent or their their right. um, the person that came before them. This is something they should do in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one exciting thing in Congress, I think, is there's begin to be some of these groups. Uh, there's a veterans organization called With Honor that I'm trying to follow a little bit, which is putting money up both for Democrats and Republicans who have come out of the military and who have a sense of, of, of America, uh, a nonpartisan America, and who have a sense of... Um, basic values of being an American and of the importance of talking across the aisle. And they sign a pledge to do a number of things that are kind of abstract, but then some very concrete things like sponsor one piece of bipartisan legislation a year and co-sponsor, you know, several um, to have a one-on-one meeting with somebody from across the aisle um, on a regular, what they say, a weekly or monthly basis, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we need to be able to have us return to these underlying Pledge of Allegiance, Star-Spangled Banner, Declaration, America the Beautiful values that we all talk about, especially in Congress. I mean, there are lawmakers. Yeah. I mean, it's something that you were talking about earlier about e pluribus unum, we have lost, it seems, the unum, or we're losing sight of unum. 
Um, right. We have a lot of diversity and, and increasing diversity. Um, things are heating up in our arguments with each other over our different groups and our different voices. And in a certain sense, this is a reaction to what the MAGA supporters say was what made us great, that we were one maybe one race, one religion, one creed, um, and one kind of people. And we are we're all wasps. We're, we're all, all wasps. Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Right. Yeah. That that ate apple pie. Only and we never actually were. Yeah, we never actually were. I mean the of we were founded not. upon a system of slavery and and that was a hidden history, so to speak. Um well, and we fought a civil war with eight hundred thousand deaths. Yes, Isn't that but, hidden? but yeah. But but to say that there are people in the country that think racism is non-existent, um, that denies that war and denies that history. Um, but I don't know. I listen to all this, and I just think to myself, we have we we have yet to come out of the the correct upheaval of our of the second civil war, which was the civil rights movement, uh, a largely peaceful civil war that remade the country, and yet. And when we lost King, we lost a visionary. He was murdered for for his actions. And let's not forget that. Um, that we have, in the generations since his death, not been able to find a single individual, man, woman, doesn't, you know, whomever it is, who can, can articulate a narrative like Lincoln did at Gettysburg, you know, of the people, for the people, by the people. Or whatever, I don't know if that's the right order, but... Close. Uh, good enough. Good enough. Or, you know, to be judged by the content of your character. The dream of being judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin. Those are forward-thinking visionaries. Um, Jefferson, flawed, though he was, uh, you know, that... Uh, Articulated that all men are created equal. And Ben Franklin made those truths self-evident because they were originally written as sacred. Um, <laughs> right, they were right. That was the first draft. No, was right. they were sacred truth, and Franklin came in with his black pen and turned them into self-evident. Uh, thank you, Scotland, for the thank you, enlightenment, <laughs> Scotland, David Hume. Um, so, but you know, I think what we're missing is a visionary, and 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 we're hungry for a visionary, and I think we are lost in the wilderness without, if you'll excuse the religious metaphor, Moses to lead us forward. That's so true. Yet, on the other hand, we can't just wait around for Moses. Um, this is really on each of us, and very much on a daily basis, it's on each of us. And I think this is should be a, a citizens um, matter. This should be a this should be civics one hundred and one. This should be citizenship. This should be what we stand for with our neighbors, uh, who we have over to dinner. Uh, what we what news we watch each night, as we were yeah. saying earlier, mm-hmm. yeah, this you know, is on mm-hmm. every one of us, and we uh, we can't just look for the the visionary leader. Well, one of the things I do think when you were talking, guys, earlier about the news, I mean, I think one of the realities is that we lost legislation, the, the Fairness Act. The right. FCC removed that. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why Cronkite was Cronkite was there was a time when we legislated fairness on the public airwaves, and we got right. rid of that. And the consequence of that is what you were talking about earlier. So one way to solve the Rachel Maddow, Sean Hannity bifurcation is to re-legislate fairness. I also think— And also maybe put journalism in the realm not of uh, capitalism. 
um, yeah, for to, sure. to not put it at what, the hands of profit. Well, Scotty, why do you listen to PBS, right? I mean, there's one place in America that's not driven by profit, NPR. Right. NPR right. being the other. They have to survive uh, with our good grace as well as our tax dollars. You know, they can't just live alone on the public uh, dole. So we, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly fundraising. That's why I give up money all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. but, you know, I think that the model, I think, Betty, you're right. The, the economic model of news and truth needs to change. I think the legislative model of news and truth needs to change. Um, but I also think, and this is my own bugaboo, which we have never talked about, actually. I don't believe in STEM like all this thing, like everybody should learn how to code and all this arts education. I don't believe in either. I don't believe in arts education Why? or STEM because we don't have civics. I believe in humanities. Well, they need both. No, no, there's know? only so much time in the day. Well, and honestly, I think that we as a country, like the fixation on coding, everybody should code, is idiotic. But arts education is a spiritual education. No, it's not. It's, yes, it is. I because, don't believe, I'm know, an artist, and I don't believe that. Well, like, artists no, no, no. are assholes. <laughs> artists are assholes. And so the, the artist is, in the, this room is the asshole. No, but like Picasso's <laughs> but, no, an no, asshole. no. But if we go back to our original or first podcast, which we we cite often, is that you social psychologist Sheldon Solomon, who we who we love dearly. We look for um, meaning in art. But that we doesn't look make for you a meaning in art. Is meaning no, art it's not. is meaning and art arts can education. Be, but art doesn't. It's mean, it's not zeros and ones, and I, it's not. I don't buy logistics. that for a second. It's not, I don't think it's that not arts logic. education makes you a better person. What's missing? I disagree. What's missing is fundamental civics. People don't know the Constitution. Well, People have not read the Declaration of Independence. Have to be People don't exclusive. know. There's only so much money and time in a day. They still have to learn math, and they still have to learn to read and write. And we we don't teach ethics. We don't yeah. teach ethics. No, we don't. How yeah. can we not teach ethics? You want to know what happens when we don't teach ethics? Walk outside your door or pick up the newspaper or go on Twitter or Facebook. That's what happens to a society that chooses to not teach ethics. The Greeks knew that their society couldn't function without ethics and rhetoric. And we've just completely decided there's no value in the humanities. See, Which includes Betty, art. Now, you're the preacher, and you did a great job <laughs> on that side. Here he goes off, you know, as the philosopher, and he's doing terrific work, you know, on, on ethics and ethics. On ethics. And civics, I, I don't think that things have to be um, parsed out like this. Price I don't think we, uh, no, I, I I don't think we need to cut things off. I, I yeah. totally agree that we need ethical education, and I totally agree we need civic education. I mean, I think part of the disappearance of these principles of the Declaration of Independence and E Pluribus Umanum and Bill of Rights is disappearing because we lack these this civic education. But I don't agree that we cut out. Uh, I don't agree that we cut out arts education. Um, I believe that there is a deeper meaning to the arts, uh, assholes notwithstanding. Um, that that arts are a, what we call in the psychoanalytic world transitional objects um, in in uh, object relations. They hold us together across the gaps. You know, the the gaps being maybe the fear of death, the gaps being separation from the other. You have a piece of art, a piece of music, the the, the strokes, Michael. Yeah, uh, These so not, carry uh, you across. There are, and they, they, not, you know, aesthetics. You, they, they, aesthetics. Aesthetic, the, and like, and, and they unify you to other people. I'm not arguing you know, against you the role of... You could love somebody I'm, on, I'm on not, a MAGA I'm supporter not, because not, they love the strokes. I'm not <laughs> arguing against the role of art in society. What I'm saying is... 
not everybody is an artist. No, that's and not. We are living. That's in not a, what it's saying. Well, you don't you teach, teach art to make an artist. You teach. Well, that's exactly arts. what we're doing. Well, that's that's that is totally what we're doing. Well, we'll get some educators in here when we talk about that. That's totally what we do in middle school. Everybody's going to be an artist. All these kids think they're going to be actors or they're going to be painters or whatever it is. I took dance as a kid. I wasn't going to be a dancer. It causes me to understand dance from the inside. Right, but the problem is we have limited resources, and so when all of that resources goes into everybody's going to be an artist. Well, everybody learning coding is not going to be a coder. Well, that's the whole point of it, right? You're teaching them coding so that they can get a good job. Meanwhile, you have people like Mark Zuckerberg who never took a humanities class, and you end up with Facebook that has no ethical core. Well, I think we go back to my original sermon, which is the spirituality and the materiality. Um, you, you, you go one-to-one, you teach coding to get a job. You teach civics to understand how to better become a politician or manage yourself in the world. That's great and that's useful. But you also have to tend to the spiritual, which is a part of the mind. And we are mindful creatures who have spirituality, who need to know that there's otherwise life is boring. If you just mind your to-do list, you mind your bottom line, you mind your bank account, it's it's deathly dull. And this is what people in the rat race suffer from. They don't have anything that, that, that connects them to a different, a higher order and, and something that's more idiosyncratic to them. Everybody looks like a color differently. You, everybody sees and tastes things differently. And if you can explore that through aesthetics, then you come to a better understanding of yourself and, and ground yourself in this. Why can't we see education as having a number of, of different uh, objects, uh, including obviously uh, getting you a job someday, but so much more that's critical and certainly civics is critical to be a citizen. You're being educated not only Absolutely. to get a job, but to be a citizen. And you're being educated to be able to relate to other people. So we'll talk about psychology or you know, or whatever. You're, you're being educated in order to have an aesthetic dimension to your life, to be able to appreciate, to smell, to taste, to be able to uh, understand music and and drama and and literature and so on. So I mean, there's a lot a lot of reasons why we educate, and it's we've got to be careful to not just limit it to one. And that's why we have universities. Ultimately, we're supposed to take all of this um, and turn it into one. We don't want to have somebody graduate from a university and had a you know a, a you know a multiversity experience where all they did was you know get these Code. Various uh, topics that they, uh, you know, silos that they lived in, uh, like uh, computer science, and not understand its connection to all the rest of human knowledge, or a confusion of subjects that don't link together into one, right. one unified. I mean, I think we're back we, to that's our next, I think we're I think we're talking about another podcast, Michael, on on education. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, <laughs> Scotty, our time is up, but this has been uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scotty. Thank you for what you're doing. It's really important, and I appreciate it. I hope uh, everyone in the world hears what you're saying out here. Well, we have reached the end of yet another session, and as my analyst likes to say to me, time to take your problems home with you. Mind of State is a production of Mind of State Media, LLC, and Hangar Studios, NYC. Our Cracker Jack producer is Caroline Quash. Our engineer is Jack Dixon. Mind of State's music is composed by Joel Goodman, courtesy of Uber Music. I'm Michael Epstein. 
And I'm Betty Tang. You can connect with us on Twitter at MindOfStatePod, on our Facebook page, and at our website, MindOfState.com. You can also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.